This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3419 for Thursday, the 9th of September 2021. Today's show is entitled Linux in Laws S01E38. Tiny Kernels and is part of the series Linux in Laws. It is hosted by Monochromic and is about 62 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is all you ever wanted to hear and more about microkernels and other operating system war stories. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever fancies you tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mom! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusty guide dog, unless on speed, and QT Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. <laughs> What's our box then? Welcome to Linux in Laws. Martin, how are things? Oh, things are not bad, not bad, uh, apart from England losing the, the Euro, European Cup. So, but there we go. so, oh, football, it was, yes. it, it was expected, of course. <laughs> was it? Who, so who won, actually? Netherlands? No, Italy. Yeah. Italy? Mm. The amateurs? Are you serious? Um, they spent quite a lot of money on football in Italy. Yeah. Well, you see, I mean, fair enough, as we all know... The, the the fortune of the championships is decided in Sicily. So when a couple of old folks talk about this mm. and then decide on the outcome, so it's not about kind of twenty two people in a in a uh, running around in a in a stadium or something like this. No, it's it's <laughs> in some old people in Sicily <laughs> wrecking the whole thing. So it just makes sense. Except Italy it did win it for a change. Uh, they, they have done in the past. Well, I th- I'm surely, surely more frequently than England. That's for sure. Uh, you see, Martin, um, that would that would imply that I know of, uh, that, that I know soccer. Ah, which, well. um, which fortunately or unfortunately depends on the point of view. I don't. Mm-hmm. It's, it can be. 
pretty boring. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, indeed. But this is not a soccer food a podcast, but rather a podcast okay, okay, between right, open yes, source software. Yes. yes. How are you anyway? Which, yeah, I can't complain actually. Um, okay. Well, yeah. Not not um, no complaints about the beer temperature today. No, for a change, not no. Okay. <laughs> Still and enjoying it. Yes. Good. Martin Marketing sent you the memo, right? That actually, Marketing, um, this, yeah, marketing yes. again. What happened? Yes, because I, 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 me, <laughs> as a matter of fact. <laughs> now, you see, one of their first actions actually after they started on the 1st of July, apparently HR didn't send the memo. Anyway, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Um, this episode was supposed to be about microkernels, but ah. marketing had this brilliant idea of to, to change this to behind glass painting. I had, uh, a, I had a telco with them yesterday. Uh, I, I, hope it, I hope it's open source glass painting. <laughs> that's exactly it. So <laughs> that's specifically the question that I asked them. What, is open, what, what, what does behind glass painting have to do with open, with open source? Hmm. A question that they couldn't answer but insisted anyway on changing the subject regardless. Okay. That leaves us with the conundrum, actually, uh, either to talk about the subject that we don't know squat about, well, <laughs> like open source, or microkernels, or the high class painting, which yeah. we know a lot about, <laughs> or was it the other way around? I can't remember. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I certainly never painted any glass. Well, not on purpose anyway. I, I, maybe, I maybe, maybe behind glass painting, as in you have to move behind the, or you have to paint it behind the glass. I don't know, or the other way around. I can't remember. Oh, my yes. mother taught my mother taught me about what forty years ago. It's all down the drain by now. As in water the bridge. Because okay. I'm other people, I don't practice it every second day no. for some reason. So why don't we do the following? Just let's fly under the radar. Well, well you, say, you say, well, you say this, but I bet there's never been a, a glass painting episode on, on Hacker Public Radio before. So, uh, I do not know, or as a matter of fact. Yes. Ken, if you're listening, please write <laughs> <laughs> yes. Feedback at littlescalops.eu, <laughs> just in case. Please, please make a glass painting episode, yes. Um, okay. Um, so we might as well actually fly under the radar of marketing and do this uh, microkernel episode Excellent regardless plan. or operating system uh, episode whatever, mm. Isn't especially kind of with, the, with an open source focus. Mm -hmm. And if they act up, Martin, just fire them again. That's okay. No worries. As you have done many times before, I might add. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Okay, so this episode is all about micro or, or operating systems, let's put it this way, with a special focus on microkernels. Full disclosure, I did a PhD on reflective operating system architectures. So you are uh, the expert. It's, it's, a, it, it's a bit of a home run. Yeah, let's put it this way. Cool. So if we invite Mr. Tannenbaum next time, then you'll be happy to. So who is this Mr. Tannenbaum you keep talking about? He, uh, he wrote many books um, on operating systems. Yes, yes. I can one, recall as, as all... one, one I... of them. Yeah. I can, exactly, I can recall only one, as a matter of fact. Oh, yes. What's this called, then? Uh, modern Operating Systems or something. I can't remember the exact title, but he signed my copy regardless, I think. That's nice of him. And that was the last time I saw him, about, what, 30 years ago. Okay. Well, there you go, then. So any any authors out there, don't, don't sign your book to Chris, because you'll never be seen again. <laughs> Full disclosure, um, I co-wrote the first... German book on Mark III, which was a popular microkernel at the time. 
And that got me to a USNIP conference where actually I ran into said Mr. Feinbaum for the first time in my life. And we had a chat. Yes, that was in 1903 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's an ages ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, even Usenet, let me. <laughs> sorry, Usenix, sorry. Did I say Usenix? As in the uh, um, use, uh, as in the Unix, whatever, association. Oh, Ancient I history. I you were Usenet, which used Sorry, to... Usenix, my mistake. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, that's right. That was 93, yeah. It was the, I, th- I, th- I think, if I recall correctly, that was the annual Usenix Systems Conference or something like this. People look it up. This is what the Catfeed Network is for. And this is basically where I ran into into Andy, uh-huh. and that was prior actually to. Did you say I signed my book? The, <laughs> yes, that was prior actually to the Usenet wars, which we would call to the Usenet wars. Sorry, <laughs> long day to the Usenet wars on Linux versus versus Linux, which mm. we're going to cover in a minute, I suppose. I think we should. Yeah. So why don't right. we do, why don't we do a short historical wrap up, which will take us about what about two hours? <laughs> so if you want to no, skip no, these no, people, no, just fast forward to before, no, no, before before we start on the history bit. Um, why don't you tell us why this? Uh, okay, why do why did microkernels came about? Well, that was part of the, it. I thought that was part of the history session. As in the history well, part of the session, sorry. Yeah, but then you're kind of setting the scene for the listeners. Why this is... Uh, sorry, microkernels came about because somebody had a brilliant idea of do more compartmentalization on an operating system level. Simple. And why did they decide this? Some crap about portability, lower the, tees, lower the, the technical depth and all the rest of it. Read it up, people. It's all out there. <laughs> Hang on, I thought you were an expert. <laughs> okay, Martin, does the concept ring? Does the concept of fashion ring a bell? Fashion. If, well. if it doesn't, just take a look at your wife or girlfriend <laughs> or both. <laughs> they, they'll be more than happy to fill you in about that concept. So, right. fashion for the uninitiated. If these are trends, especially in apparel, that come and go. There are whole books written on the There are a lot of books written on the subject. They have TV shows covering the whole thing. And funny enough, fashions also have a certain impact on something called technology, believe it or not. Uh-huh. So what you're saying is that there is no benefit to a microkernel. We're getting there in a moment. <laughs> Martin, if you wouldn't keep interrupting me. <laughs> no, let's start at the very beginning. Okay, okay. Martin, you must record it well. It's mid-60s. IBM had no, just no no, no you can't why I thought you no, were right no I wasn't help you anyway it doesn't matter it's mid sixties <clears throat> a company called IBM has just revised their assumption that five computers would do the planet nicely and are, mm-hmm. and are seriously getting into this computer game. Uh, what started out as a mechanical endeavor quickly turned into, especially after after the invention of something called a transistor, turned into much more electronical approaches. Let's put it this way. And with the higher integration of said computers, the need for a more, let's put it this way, structured approach to writing software came about. Hence the notion of operating systems that would clearly separate applications from the underlying hardware. Mm-hmm. You uh, you missed the uh, missed the phase though anyway. 
Modern enlightened me. Between the mechanical and the transistor were the, the bulbs, right? <laughs> yes. In the interest of time, I'll skip this because otherwise we wouldn't, board, we wouldn't be talking about two hours, but rather four. Okay. <laughs> okay. Short episode then, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Fast forward to something called 1972, when IBM had not only copped onto the fact that the operating systems are great, but you would be because the computers at the time, manufactured by some company, were very powerful machines exhibiting about four kilobytes of main memory and a couple of megabytes of hard disk storage. Of course, the idea at the time was to make use of set of set hardware for not only one application but for multiple applications. So a few hard drives in nineteen seventy-two. Okay. Yes. Or tape drive? I think the first disc was I think was was invented kind of level kind of late late sixties. Uh, Before that, of course, they had they had tapes and yeah. and and um, what are they called? Punch cards. My, my uni, which was well past yes. but doesn't mean that the hard disk didn't exist. Mm. But then you went to uni. Very expensive. <laughs> but then you went to uni about late fifties, right? No, this was um. Uh, when was that? Sixty-one, eighty-six. Yeah, nineteen eighty-six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did adult education, okay, as in kind of <laughs> after your first job or something. I no. see. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, so um, you, were, you were saying you were saying nineteen seventy-two. Yes, nineteen seventy-two. I invented something called the virtual machine. And the rest is history. As usual in history, things tend to repeat themselves. Hmm. Now, the shocking news, things may look different, but at the end of the day, they're still the same. (laughs) So technology has just progressed a little bit over the last, what, 50 years? So yes, of course, integrated circuits have have become much more compact. We're talking about um, nanometer technology now and all the rest of it, but at the end of the day, operating systems have had a few breakthroughs, but at the end of the day, it's still kind of software running between applications and hardware. Simple. Mm -hmm. And with that, we are moving into the picks. Sorry, uh, the poxes. Yeah. <laughs> As in the picks of the week, no joke to say. Okay, um, it's 1972. IBM has come uh, to the to the conclusion that because of the number of operating systems that they had running on their on their kit, they would need an abstraction layer to allow set operating systems run concurrently on a single machine. Because as today or comparable today, IBM was still obsessed with making lots of money. So at the time, they still sold their mediocre hardware, especially in, the, in today's terms, for a lot of money. So instead of um, companies or universities buying quite a few of them, they, they only could afford one. So that's the reason actually why they put something called a virtual machine on the, on the, on the machine, on that hardware, allowing them to run multiple operating system instances concurrently. So even then, you had the precursor to something called MBS. You had something called the disk operating system, hence the name, uh, disks, and all the rest of it. So that was the first kind of uh, instantiation, of, if you will, of a virtual concept. 
like abstracting away from the hardware and allowing or simulating from the view of a guest operating system virtualized hardware, let's put it this way. What happened simultaneously in terms of concurrent developments, quite a few people, late 60s, early 70s, got together and developed an operating system independently and as an outsider of IBM called Multics. Say, say again, what was it called? Multics. One of the first kind of mainframe, smaller mainframe time sharing operating systems. IBM already had the notion of something called the, uh, something called TSO, time sharing operating system, which I think they branded subsequently. The idea was on your typical MBS instance, you would have time sharing as the name implies. <laughs> so you, you would have potentially thousands of users accessing one, a single MBS instance. Quite a few companies came up with similar concepts. Multics was one of, was one of them. I think Multics actually was a university of development. Um, details maybe in the show notes. But Multics had one trait. It served as a blueprint for something called Unix, which was developed by AT&T, early 70s. Mm-hmm. And Unix, running initially on things like a PDP-11, subsequently a VAX, was well, um... one of the popular mini-computer multi-user operating systems at the time. Well, you can run Linux on a VAX as well. Okay. You, yes, um, you can, of course. Digital market marketed this as Altrix. Yeah. Years I'll be, ago. That's, that's yes. Oh. Years ago. And of course, they had a, they had a competing off called VMS Go, which we will go into in a minute. But first, let's cover Unix. Unix and its friends had one important notion comparable to, or one important trait comparable to Maltics and all the rest of them. They were monolithic kernels, as in, it was essentially one big blob that on the one side abstracted away from the hardware and on the other side gave applications an interface to talk to the hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to administering resources, making sure that, applic- that applications are executed in a fair way so that not one application could hog out of the hardware, but rather that each and every application would get a slice of the available CPU capacity and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Set operating systems would also basically provide something called a file system where you wouldn't have to access the blocks of a disk or another storage medium sequentially or directly, but rather could associate data with with a so-called directory entry. Mm. This was a good idea, wasn't it? Indeed. Which, of course, other companies like Microsoft ripped off completely when they did something. Oh, sorry. Microsoft didn't do, of course, MS-DOS because, as probably we all know, Microsoft simply bought something called QDOS and just marketed as Microsoft Disk Operating System. But that's another story for another day. Fast forward, um, Berkeley did a re-implementation of said Unix, which is now known as something called the Berkeley Software Distribution, BSD. But all of these operating systems had one thing in common, monolithic operating systems becoming larger and larger and larger, the more functionality you put into them. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to the early 80s. Digital has had just created a, the success of something called the PDP, called the VAX, V-A-X. I can't remember what it stands for. VAX, but which virtual something or, or, or other. You'll find the details in the show notes, I hope. 
um, but uh, wasn't exactly happy with the operating system run on the on the on its successor called the, uh, on its predecessor rather, rather uh, called the PDP eleven. So Dave Cutler, digital engineer, sat down and architected something called the Virtual Machine System. I think it's called VMS. That was the the first commercially in brackets available microkernel. The idea behind the microkernel was to have a thin layer abstracting away from the hardware and then have compartmentalized subsystems running on this microkernel on this thin layer of that that simply abstracted the hardware away. So the in contrast to the monolithic operating systems, this thin layer would merely provide a hardware abstraction. So where you had different, say, for example, drive technologies, it would provide a common API towards the different subsystems running on top of it that would make the disks pretty much look alike. I'm simplifying, but essentially that works. That that was or that still is the way it works. Same goes for same goes for other hardware like network connections or like network network interface cards, input systems, and all the rest of it. So that is the general idea behind a behind a microkernel. The idea, of course, being that you could have not only one subsystem a subsystem running on top of the microkernel, but having more than one. So that was the overall idea behind the microkernel at that time. Now, at some stage, they've got a defector called to to a company called Microsoft. Probably that that probably rings a bell. Uh, who at the time had just progressed from this QDOS thing called M from this QDOS derived thing called MS DOS to something called Windows, mm. or were just about to let's put it this way. We're talking early eighties. Well, MS DOS was essentially what's what I'm looking for instantiated, not derived, but thought up thought up early eighties. I mean. IBM was looking, okay, the full story, and this is common internet lore. IBM was looking for an operating system for its newly invented, that's what I'm looking for, or was looking for, for, the, for its newly invented PC line. As in an Intel chip, an Intel chip with the name of AD88. As in 16-bit architecture, but 8-bit bus, they checked with the digital research guys who manufactured CPM for the Zilog Z80 at the time, but the proprietor and his wife, so common law goes, were threatened by the fact that IBM people showed up and the first that they put on the table was a non-disclosure agreement. That scared them away. Huge mistake, as it turns out later. This initial deal that IBM had in mind to put CPM on that, on that personal computer of theirs didn't really check out. Then there was this small company called Microsoft on Albuquerque, New Mexico, who got wind of the story and said, we can, of course, provide you with an operating system for ZPC line. Fun fact, Bill Gates and friends never had the technology then and there, but managed to convince IBM regardless. Now, of course, they were looking for an operating system that they could put on the machine, searched high and low, and came about more or less a prototype called QDOS, Quick and Dirty Operating System, which Funny enough, could run on an Intel 888, sorry, 8088, and also 8086. They bought 
essentially the rights, including the source code of that QDOS, and marketed this at, as the Microsoft DIS operating system, subsequently known as, as MS-DOS. Now, what also happened during the course of the 80s when Microsoft did this, companies like Apple, Xerox, and other visionaries, including Silicon Graphics, I might add, came up with the idea of putting a GUI, as in graphical user face, on top of their Unix systems. Mm-hmm. Sun also helped along, let's put it this way. So Microsoft was, especially with regards to the competition with Apple, in dire need of putting also a graphical user face on top of, of something called MS-DOS. Hence, this whole notion of Windows 1.0 was born. Mm, yes, I remember it. <laughs> it was completely useless. Um, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> you better off just with plain DOS. If you <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, and it became quite clear, actually, that given the fact that IBM put more and more resources into this personal computer technology line of theirs, it would become quite clear that eventually this whole cobbled together technology stack wouldn't suffice. So Microsoft made one smart move at the time. They asked Dave Cutler, the inventor of that VMS, to join them. Mm-hmm. That must have been, I reckon, early mm-hmm. 80s, mm-hmm. something like that. So what Dave, what Dave Cutler did, apart from hiring a few university people, he brought also along his his ex some of some of his ex digital team. Um, among the university people he hired was Rick, was Rick, was a Rick Rashid from Carnegie Mellon University. Rick Rashid, Seth Rick Rashid, was actually one of the brainchilds behind something called Mark III, which was one of the research microkernels at the time. We're talking still that kind of late eighties. So Dave Cutler was commissioned with the task of, de- of developing something called the next big thing, like a true operating system that wasn't based on QDOS mm-hmm. or subsequently known as Microsoft uh, Disk Operating System with a graphical user with a graphical user face on top, but rather something that would look like a much more real operating system. IBM no, also IBM had this graphical operating system. Right? Yes, IBM also had this technology of uh, called OS2, which was still a monolithic kernel. But given the fact that IBM was, and to a certain extent still is, under the impression that not everything that they bought eventually checks out, and I hear that there's still voices at IBM that think the same of Red Hat, but it's, of course, a totally different story. And suffice it to say, they put some money on the table and developed something called OS2 internally. Mm-hmm. Microsoft provided some of the stack to this, but not an awful lot because most of the stuff was done internally. But IBM managed to, because IBM eventually got wind of the fact that Microsoft was doing their own new operating system, funny enough, called New Technology, because for IBM, uh, sorry, for Microsoft, this whole microkernel thing was new technology in terms of a proper operating system for a change. They managed to wrangle the commission from Microsoft that 
Microsoft, in addition to a Windows personality, and we're going to get into what a personality is in a minute, managed to wrangle the, the commission out of Microsoft that in addition to the a Windows personality, personality, they would also do an O2 personality running on top of this new technology operating system that Microsoft was just doing as in DevCut internally. So that is the reason why you have with early versions of Microsoft, especially 351, you still have that OS2 personality running on top of the microkernel. So what Dave Cutler eventually did, he did a, I'm almost tempted to say, a spin of VMS. He, he constructed a microkernel that was just a thin layer on top of the existing PC hardware but provided an API to run certain so-called personalities on top of set microkernels. And one of them was Windows, one of them actually, another one was OS2. And of course, the third one would be, it would be a, a POSIX compliant CMD-like interface, like a, pretty much like a term emulation you would have with um, the early DOS versions. So, this new thing called Windows New Technology, short Windows NT, was born early 90s. Hmm. Did you know that the original NT name came from the target processor, which was the Intel i860, apparently? Interesting, because I thought NT was sending for new technology. No, that was later sort of added as a marketing spin. But it was, I see. It, it, it was, makes sense, because for, for Microsoft, it was new technology. The um, i860 apparently had a code name of N10, which is well, it, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah because a very well-known fact, but it's handy no, for quiz, yeah. it, it, <laughs> very much so. No, because it, originally they targeted 8086 and, to a lesser extent, 8088 with that, hmm. because 8088 was simply not powerful enough to drive that microkernel. Now, what also happened actually on the other side of the galaxy? I'm tempted to say that uh, there was a company called Apple that did quite a few interesting things in the 80s. Mm. Came up with uh, graphical workstations called Lisa. Some people consider it to be stillborn. But also something called a Mac in Tosh, which of course, as we all know, wasn't a stillborn when it comes down to commercial success. No, well, as I said, <laughs> if you compare it to IBM, then it wasn't really a success, right? We're going to get there in a minute, Mark. Don't worry sales, about it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, well, um, in, in the in the Apple ecosystem, the sales figures of something called the Lisa of, of small relevance, exactly <laughs> in comparison to the Mac to, to the Mac uh, to the Macintosh, paled. Let's put it this way. So, the Lisa tagged. And the Mac and, and and the Macintosh had some, let's put it this way, small success in, in comparison to the IBM PC and friends. Uh -huh. um, of course, the fact that IBM, to some extent, opened up their system to allow cloners get in on the game, of course, helped a certain, a certain, well, helped certainly. Let's put it this way, because you would get IBM PC clones and XC clones and AT clones as in vast technology, as in the successor of the original PC, left, right, and center. Apple, in contrast, was a closed system. 
Apple never opened up the IP, the interfaces to their systems, so you couldn't clone them. As a matter of fact, Apple, still is, by the way, is very peculiar about third-party software running on, on their machines, never mind opening up the specifications of set, uh, of, of set MacBooks or of, of set Macintosh or whatever. It's still a closed system. Even more so with the recent addition of something called Apple Silicon, because this is really a closed system. But I'm digressing. Okay, back into the 80s. Uh, as Martin rightly observed, in comparison to, to the sales figures of IBM Friends, Apple wasn't doing too well. Mm. As a matter of fact, they made quite a few mistakes, one of them ousting a certain Steve Jobs from the board of Apple Computers. Funny enough, a company he originally founded with a, guy called, with a guy called Steve Wozniak, but we're talking 70s now. So Steve Jobs went off to set up his own company called Next Computers. The idea was to pro provide a high-spec, high-value workstation to, mo to mostly the educational markets. The trouble is the Cube, as it was called, was quite a good machine, but lacked one feature, an operating system. Didn't they write them in? Well, no. Okay. They took things that already existed ah. and put something on top of this. Put a name on it. Okay. <laughs> so if you take a look at something called Nexus, which was essentially the operating system running on, on set Next computers, you're looking at a Mark microkernel, a GNU user land, and a proprietary GUI. And that hasn't really changed since then. Okay, fun fact. The few people who didn't go from Carnegie Mellon University, as in the Mark III project, who didn't go to Microsoft, joined a company called Apple. Because Steve Jobs was quite convincing for them to join said company. After he sold Next Computers to Apple back again, late 80s. Apple at the time saw this as a way out of, out of their conundrum. Apple was tanking. Next had some initial success with the computer, with, with, a, with a number of education computers. So Mr. Scully thought it would, it would make, it would, it might be a good idea to bring Steve Jobs back in, back into the company. So essentially he made Steve an offer he couldn't refuse. A few dollars changed hands. Never mind the fact that Steve Jobs was offered the position as an interim CEO to run Apple once again. Something that he couldn't refuse. Hence, and this new thing called Macintosh was born once again, now running, in contrast to something called OS 9, a new operating system, like an adapted next OS called OS X, like OS 10, that had in contrast to OS 9, true multitasking and some other benefits. Fast forward, about 20 years later, Apple and Microsoft... What year, what year, what year are we now? Late Sorry. tens. <laughs> okay. Well, actually make that 2005, 2004, something like this. 2005, okay. Yeah. Yes, 2005, 2004. Steve Jobs already had 
copped on to the fact that the desktop market is quite limited, never mind the server market, if you are playing the league below IBM with their big art and all the rest of it. Plus the fact that Apple still at the time was pretty expensive. So around early 2000s, I reckon, Jobs had this brilliant idea of turning a computer manufacturer in something called a marketing front. And that was one of the jobs he excelled at. So the notion of iPads, iPods, and all the rest of these gadgets that Apple really kind of used to save the company, that was a smart move by a certain Mr. Jobs to turn, an, I'm, I'm always tempted to say, an aiding hardware manufacturer into a lifestyle company. Hence, the new Apple was born. Now, at the time, and I'm digressing here a little bit, but it, it will click into place in about five hours when I've come to the conclusion of this episode, but don't worry about it. Um, I think we're probably at looking time. at a mini-series rather than an episode. <laughs> at the time, a certain Andrew Rubinstein has, had come up with the idea of putting a small computer into everybody's pockets. Funny enough, he named this little computer an Android. Steve Jobs had pretty much the same vision. He imagined that the phones that you could get at the that you could get at the time, like the Blackberries and all the rest of them, had one feature missing. You could only phone people with them. Maybe you could read mails, but that was as, that. But that was pretty much as far as it went. The idea that both people had is why not put a very small computer that is able to run apps as in applications into everybody's pocket at a price. Andrew went down the route of adapting something called Linux as the basis for his voice Android uh, operating system. Whereas a certain Mr. Jobs decided that they already had something called Mac OS or, or also known as OX10 and simply stripped down that version to something called iOS, which was the basis for something called the iPhone, which Apple launched, I think, in 28 or something. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. Kind of late 2010s um, or something. So the iPhone was essentially running the Mark microkernel with a stripped-down FreeBSD personality because, because that's exactly what what the what the operating system that the original NextOS still kind of possessed with the graphical user base on top of it still is. So if you're looking at an iPhone today, you're still, you're still looking at a kind of tiny Mark, Mark III microkernel, simply abstracting away the hardware, then something called a FreeBSD personality, also known as Darwin in the in the in Apple lingo, and then some crappy proprietary GUI on top of that. macOS is still the same, hasn't changed. So this is the reason why if you open a terminal on any OS X machine since for or for at least for the last fourteen years. 13 years, essentially, you're looking at a BSD system. Mac ports and Homebrew are just BSD package managers. That's the beauty about it. Uh -huh. So, kids, <laughs> grandfather is done talking. 
I mean, this is the kind of the, this is the history in a nutshell. This is, these are the two kind of prominent examples for two microcurrent technologies that have survived time. Let's put it this way. Because Windows NT is still around, now called Windows 10, or maybe even Windows 11, if, and if, yeah, if, almost, if, if yeah. the, yes, current law is anything to go by. I mean, the last, the last DOS-based version that Microsoft did was, I think, Windows ME around 1998 or something like this. Blimey. And then yeah. after that, you're looking at Windows NT successors, let's put it this way. So if you boot up your Windows XP, if it's around, if you boot up your Windows 7, 8, or 10, essentially you're looking at the microkernel architecture at a very successfully, from a commercial perspective, I might add, microkernel architecture. Same goes for, same goes for OS X. So you're using microkernel architectures if you're using any of these two systems. What you're not using, sorry, the other way around, you're not using a microkernel architecture if you're on a Linux, because Linux is still the monolithic operating system, to some extent, let's put it this way, that Linux thought up about 20 plus years ago. Linux is now called these days a hybrid operating system, let's put it this way, because since early days, you can load uh, something called kernel modules into the kernel. So you can extend the kernel, for example, with entropy generators, with device drivers and all the rest of it. But essentially, it's still a monolithic kernel. In contrast, for example, to something called Minix. Mm-hmm. So Andy Tannenbaum, if you're listening, <laughs> we should probably talk about Minix now, shouldn't we? We can do, can do. Care to enlighten us to enlighten us about the use about the Usenet wars, Martin? Yeah, well, this is really um, given the fact yeah. that you're half Dutch originally, anyway, <laughs> or 100 percent Dutch actually. Well, no, 100 percent, but um, that's a story for another day. So um, I was just about to ask where the rest comes from. <laughs> yeah. So well, about the time, yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, um, uh, so I think it was Tannenbaum who opened the, the so-called war, or whatever you call it. Uh, he initially said that Linux is obsolete when he first, um, uh, it's somewhere around 92-ish, maybe. Um, it's when, when, he came, when, he, of course, yes. when, when he came up with Minix, right? And it's, it's, it, um, he said, uh, now that we have microkernels and we have Minix, this Linux is obsolete. Uh, or Unix, so, for that matter, I think originally. Uh, I think I think it was specifically um, okay. saying Linux because that's why the uh, the reply came from Linux himself, right? Um, for some strange odd reason, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, so that's for how it started, and then um, yeah, Linux replied about. You know all the shortcomings of Minix, like multi-threading, or lack of multi-threading, and whatever. Um, but yeah, that's how it started. And uh, so, so Tannenbaum's original argument around Minix is that it was able to run on um, much cheaper, smaller uh, CPUs, right? Than a, a monolithic kernel, which is clearly uh, these days not such an issue, but um, uh, back in the day, uh, memory and, and CPU processing power came at a 
significantly higher cost than they do now. Um, so that was his argument that, that with, with the with the macro kernel you can run it on much a smaller footprint systems. True, and I mean, the, I mean, the the argument of course doesn't hold because if you take a look at Linux these days, mm. Linux is probably the operating system that can be that can be deployed on the most varied hardware that is on the planet. ARM support entered the kernel in '95. That was a very early smart move, I might add. So since the kind of mid-90s, you could run Linux on an ARM architecture. Of course, Linux, when he devised Linux, had this Intel processor in mind called 386, because at the time that was basically the hardware that he had. But given the fact that quite a few people re-architected this monolithic kernel, essentially, if you take a close look at the, at the structure of the source code, although it's still a monolithic kernel, there's only a small set of hardware abstractions encapsulated and the rest is portable C. Mm. So although from an architecture perspective, it's not a microkernel, the hardware dependencies like a microkernel have been pretty much encapsulated. Yeah. You can see this if you take a look at, for example, the Wi-Fi device driver architecture. There is a thin layer that encapsulates the hardware specifics of a, of a Wi-Fi NIC, and after that, it's generic 802.11 stack, independent of any device features. And this is the beauty. Of course, there is a little-known fact that when it comes down to deployment figures, Linux has actually won the war, because... As common lore goes, Intel took a very close look at something called Linux when they architected something called the Trusted Platform Module. For those listeners who are not familiar with the TPM, if you power up any Intel processor of what, the last 10, 15 years of this, maybe even longer, essentially beyond, below the operating system runs another operating system on a, on a different portion of the of the CPU die called the TPM, the Trusted Platform Module, which is in charge of crypto things, some persistent storage, maybe a web server. <laughs> Unfortunately, Intel only opens so much of this IP, so the rest of is the rest is actually speculation. But the lore goes that TPM is just much more than just a hardware module. Details will be in the show notes, but fun fact, Tannenbaum was approached with some specific questions about the Minix code base. He answered these questions, but then radio silence. Some people way later in history took a close look and in terms of reverse engineered portions of the TPM code and came to the conclusion that this is something very close to, to something called Minix. So in the terms of deployment numbers, Minix has clearly won the war in comparison to Linux. Because if you take all of the Intel-based CPUs on the planet into account, you're looking at slightly more CPUs than something called Android that is in everybody's pockets is using or running on set devices as an ARM architectures running inside your smartphone. 
Okay. Still awake, Martin. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I have some questions. We'll get to those at some point. But yes, yes, by all maybe, means. Maybe, maybe, maybe next episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, what questions are there, Mr. Visor? Well, um, okay. So, the difference between um, monolithic and microkernels are quite clear. Um, now, what are the characteristics, the um, uh, benefits of one over the other in certain circumstances, like um, performance, um, security? Any thoughts on these subjects? How many time do how much time do we have? Another two hours? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, to to summarize, of course, you do pay an overhead with regard to performance. I mean, this is what you clearly see. And Microsoft made quite a few mistakes here. If you take a look at something called Windows NT version three point one, where actually the video device driver was separate from the microkernel implementation, you could actually see the window content refreshing and getting a cup of tea mm. because it only, it, it, it took so long because of the, for example, of the context switches between the different subsystems, mm. something they corrected, I think with three, five, one or four, because they moved the device drivers back yeah. onto the, onto the microkernel plane, which of course meant fun. lesser context switches and much improved performance mm -hmm. as usual. Security and performance are always trade-off. Hasn't, hasn't really changed. So the, so the more secured uh, system is, the lower probably the performance is. This is what you see, again, when you take a close look at the different versions of the NT. You say, if you move the video driver closer to the microkernel, a bug in any video driver could compromise the microkernel it, itself or the personality where it's moved into, depending on how you put it. Um, so this is your typical kind of trade-off bargain. What do you want to have? Do you want to have improved security where you isolate as many components as you can? Or do you want to have a performance system where you basically trade in security to some extent? Needless to say, MMUs in the early days and something called security enclaves in modern systems do help that matter. And I reckon with the advent of more and more virtualization, even in your smartphone... Things like security enclaves become more and more, more and more important. And um, so, sorry, and uh, for the people who don't know what security enclaves is, technology developed, I think, originally oh, by three of them, <laughs> Yes, I think Intel was the first company to commercialize it. Anyway, imagine an address space that is further subdivided into so-called enclaves. These enclaves can only be accessed by certain portions of the code who have the, which have the necessary rights. In contrast to MMUs, when an application, once it has acquired the address space, can do what, pretty much whatever, whatever it wants with it. So picture a more secure system powered by additional hardware features. Let's put it this way. So you get more security without the additional cost. Let's put it this way. The research, the corresponding research goes back to the, uh, Thing, late 80s, early 90s, when people already thought about putting more intelligence into something called memory, memory management units, MMUs. Okay, so going back to um, the kernel debate, which one is more secure? 
I reckon Minix would win the war here. Because if you load a, a Linux kernel module into the kernel, it has free reign of the kernel mm. in its kernel rest space. So a pointer problem can, of course, corrupt kernel data structures. If you corrupt kernel data structures, you might as well power down the, power, power down the machine. In contrast to this, personalities typically run in their own address space. So the connecting medium is actually the the queuing systems or any other inter-process communication that the microkernel offers. So it's more secure at a price because you do pay, for example, the context switching overhead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that covers the, the formal aspect as well. Yeah, very good. Something, of course, that will be alleviated with quantum, with the arrival of quantum computing. <laughs> but that's another story for another day, children. Excellent. And with that... Andrew now <laughs> <laughs> disguised as Mr. as Mr. as Mr. Visser will take us into the foxes. What's your box, Martin? Oh, Blammy. Um what was it? Why don't you go first Lu after Lu Lu let me let me guess lukewarm mail. <laughs> no, no, there was something um... really? What what has changed? Camera cancel the membership because you didn't pay your dues. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, happens to the best of us. <laughs> What's our box then? Yes, of course. A movie called The Sleepover. Hmm, don't know that one. Recent one, I think it's from 2020 or something like this. As in typically family comedy. If you listen to Bar's credits, because um, I. I Full, full disclosure, Python Init mentioned this on one of the episodes about a year ago or something, and I simply checked it out, and Tobias spot on, it's very, it's very funny. Essentially, it's about a family that invites neighboring or other kids over for a sleepover. What they don't know is actually that the mum of the family is a secret agent uh, being recruited on her very last mission. And the husband is a, let's put it this way, wasp, for want of a better expression. Is it a wasp? A wasp. Uh, wasp, yes. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Oh, not, not a flying animal. <laughs> Sorry. And it's just drawn into the whole adventure. Very funny, don't miss it, if you're into that sort of family, uh, family entertainment. It's, it's clean, it's fun, it's, it's, it's hilarious to watch with, with, with kids, if you have any. Okay, excellent. Martin, what's your box? Um, well, I haven't really watched anything um, for a week. Well, so, you could mention a book if you want. Yes, uh, well, I, I can mention a paper um, because I was quite impressed by it. A paper? Uh, like paper. a newspaper, like the, like the sun or something? <laughs> you well, heard me first do, do, do people read the sun? <laughs> No, Martin, they don't, because that's the reason why it's one of the biggest newspapers in the UK. People simply don't read it, so don't worry about it. <laughs> do people still make physical newspapers? Okay? They do, yes. Okay, enough. okay. Um, well, I certainly haven't. Uh, oh, wait, well, yes. Uh, when I used to go on a train, oh, two years ago, <laughs> we used to have <laughs> those free, free newspapers called the Metro. Yeah, very true, very true. Yes. Oh, yeah. I remember this. So you read a newspaper and you were thoroughly impressed. No, I didn't. I didn't no, no, <laughs> not not. Uh, it's, it's a research paper. Um, a research? You 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 read research papers? Why? Occasionally. 
Well, to learn about stuff. <laughs> have <laughs> to you, find find out what the current research is on certain things. Have, have you started the study once again? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mark, you hear it here first, people. Martin Spector Uni. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Hopefully, not, studying not. something worthwhile this time. <laughs> uh, well, not microkernels. No. <laughs> I think I think that uh, yeah. Um, that war has been uh, so dusted. You, you were saying you said you read a research paper. May I inquire about the subject? Oh yes, of course, of course. Um, it's called parallel algorithms for real time uh, root of the, uh, not root optimization. Yeah, it's none of this GPU. No, no. Uh, parallel algorithm, algorithm, right? Scheduling. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um, what? Say again. Algorithms with what? For real time railway rescheduling. Cameron, if you're listening, get get in touch with Mr. Visser. <laughs> Inside well, joke. What's it got to do with beer? I, nothing. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know cat camera were into railways, but there we go. Sorry, Cameron. Cameron. Oh, yes. my, friend, my friend Cameron. Yes, yes. Yes. Indeed. Uh, well, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, what is well, uh, about then? Well, it's about. <laughs> Algorithms for real time real time you should be scheduling. Say, Mark. <laughs> no, it's it's enlightenment about the details. It's it's rather well done, um, which is why I mention it. I mean, there's there's obviously many people write research papers about lots of different things. Hang on, um, hang on, hang on, Martin. Let me let me let me put this into perspective. I mean, Train Spotting was quite a cool movie, granted, but the original <laughs> Train Spotting is quite different. I'm, I'm led to believe. Uh, so I reckon that this algorithm paper is pretty much the next step, though. <laughs> it, 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 will, it will put you to sleep instantly rather than after two minutes. It's it's only 180 pages. So, yeah. <laughs> a research paper, okay. Hmm. Well, it's actually putting together lots of other research as well. So it's, it, from that point of view, it's uh, it's what I meant. Uh, meant oh, it's, 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 it's ripping off current research, okay? It's it's combining previous research and, and adding to it. Indeed. But yeah, so if, if you're... Like ripping off, okay? I get it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's open source for you, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, fair enough. As long as you quote it, nothing wrong with it. Mm. Indeed. Um, yeah, so there you go. So if you want to learn about how to reschedule real with tables, um, details will be shown. If you're suffering from from insomnia, that is the place to go to. <laughs> Just in case. In case you made it to this this end of the episode. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> if you're still awake, can't get to sleep. <laughs> take a look at this research paper. There you go. A handy tip for the yes. <laughs> insomniacs. I'm so inclined, yes. And with that, people, thank you for listening. And of course, as usual, oh, before I forget, yes, of course, we don't have feedback, but we like to thank Hacker Public Radio for hosting us. Indeed. For nice. almost one and a half years. Ken, thank you very much. And of course, if you want to send feedback, Claudio or not, mm. The address is feedback at linuxinlaws.eu. 
Microsoft, IBM, Apple, if you want your name mentioned more often on the show, the address is sponsored. If you want an episode on glass painting, uh, likewise, yes. <laughs> it's actually if, feedback. Yes. If you, if you, if you want to keep Martin happy, just send an M1 <laughs> to his address. <laughs> I, I, we'll be more than happy to share the details. Just send a message to sponsorandlinuxinlost.eu. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks for listening and looking forward to having you around for the next episode. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Tab attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margo to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under Creative Commons at Gemando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. <laughs> Yeah, I'll need to sort out my audio as well. Bear with me. Um, you can try one of these semi-open source operating systems. <laughs> or one of us, uh, Mac OS or something, I don't know. Oh, is that a semi-open? Okay. Yes, it's semi-open. <laughs> we will go into the details in a minute, Martin. Don't worry. Yeah, my name is Dave Cutler. Actually, I was in charge of something called DMS. <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> and then I ventured to the dark side like so many others. <laughs> One of my favorite operating systems. Mark, um, if I do this, this whole liquid professional will become lukewarm, and that's the pleasant side. I mean, uh, uh, of course, you wouldn't know because you drink it lukewarm all the time. <laughs> it depends what you call lukewarm. Hey. You want to do the intro? I mean, no. Uh, well, you have you, you, you should um, you have to restart the recording first. Oh, no? I have to start recording. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it would come in handy. That, that would be annoying. Wouldn't it? <laughs> Spent the whole episode, all episode non-recording. Um, Martin, and if you if you would have bothered to take a look at the calendar, you would have said behind glass painting episode. Ah, okay. Uh, but not to worry, I'm flexible enough to basically to go back to Mac kernels anyway, no worries. <laughs> good, good, glad to hear it. Um, so, Mr. Oh. Tannenbaum, if you could do your magic and start the oh, recording, yes. that would be greatly appreciated. Find the right window first, hang on. Maybe you could, maybe you could, maybe you could run Linux instead of Linux. <laughs> Let's see. Welcome right to then, <laughs> Mr. Cutter. Good evening. <laughs> uh, my pox of the week is a movie called Taking Lives.
Hang on, didn't you have that last episode? Sorry, we have to cut this out. Don't <laughs> 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 spot it, yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Reply me. <laughs> I'm really getting old. <laughs> What's our box then? Hey? I, I can't remember. Yes, of course. <laughs> You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.